0: The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including OLAS Media.
1: OLAS Media presents Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. In
2: 1985, a man crawled through her apartment door in North Dallas and attacked her. He came
3: immediately to my bedside and had me turn over and he um,
2: wrapped what felt like a leather strap around my wrist. She says he sexually assaulted her and then threatened to kill her. I was crying so
3: bad and and sobbing that it really bothered him and he had a gun to my head and he um, said he he would kill me if I wouldn't stop sobbing.
2: DNA testing wasn't around, it wasn't until technology advanced that law enforcement came up with a national database called CODIS. CODIS is where DNA profiles are stored from crime scenes, convicted offenders, and missing persons. So when police get DNA from a crime scene, they run it through CODIS looking for a match. Dallas police ran the DNA from Carrie's rape kit in 2003. Randy White is a special agent with the FBI.
4: We take um, that information and then we start doing, coming through publicly available records like we would on another investigation and trying to find connections where that person could
2: possibly have been at the time uh, or location uh, of this offense. Layton D'Antoni is the Dallas County prosecutor that looks at cold cases.
1: I got an email uh, from a woman and she just kind of was telling me this incredible case about unsolved serial rapist in Dallas
2: So he took the case to the FBI to run a forensic genealogy profile, which is also called a SNP profile.
1: We identified our suspect within 24 hours.
2: DNA pointed to this man, David Thomas Hawkins, but the match was just a lead.
0: I am Anne Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to the Inside the Crime Files with Anne Marie Schubert podcast. I am Anne Marie Schubert, and this podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and the prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases around the country. Thank you very much. It also examines some of the most unique cases, sometimes that have unexpected endings. So today I'm super excited because I get to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is DNA. And one of my even probably more favorite topics is the use of genetic genealogy uh, to solve crimes throughout this country ever since the Golden State Killer. All right, I am thrilled today to have uh, as my guest, Amy Whitman from the FBI, Randy White from the FBI, and Leighton D'Antoni from Dallas County DA's office. So thank you all for joining me. Welcome all of you to this podcast.
3: Thanks, Anne-Marie.
4: Thanks. Great to be here.
0: So one of the, what I want to do today is I want to talk uh, to all of you about how, how the FBI kind of created a team um, really around the time of the Golden State Killer um, and how you guys are helping solve crime across this country. And then I want to kind of get into a specific case that Randy, the FBI and Layton worked on in Dallas called the David Hawkins case and then Leighton I want to talk to you a bit about kind of what it's like to be a prosecutor doing these types of cases so um, let me start with Amy Whitman Um, if you now that she's going to join us here and I can see half her face in the video um, Amy Whitman why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what kind of work you're doing with the FBI
3: sure so I've been an a special agent with the FBI since 2011 I have worked Uh, Criminal Matters my entire career and in 2019 I had the unique opportunity to join our investigative genetic genealogy program full time. Uh, So I've been working IgG cases since then and currently I'm assigned to FBI headquarters as the supervisory special agent overseeing our IgG program nationwide
0: okay so and for the listeners sake we all kind of have different acronyms some people call it forensic investigative genetic genealogy some people call it forensic genetic genealogy the fbi calls it igg investigative genetic genealogy i'll probably just for simplicity call it genetic genealogy today if that's okay with you guys um so amy before you got into this field of of doing the, the genetic genealogy, what kind of criminal cases were you working on with the fbi that's okay to ask.
3: Of course. Uh, I worked healthcare fraud cases for about four years and then I moved over to our Crimes Against Children squad and specifically uh, the Innocent Images project and worked Crimes Against Children for four years Uh, and then uh, prior to starting IgG I did work some kidnappings, some bank robberies uh, and threat cases similar to that and now full-time IgG ever since.
0: Did you, um, did you have any science background when you started this
3: um, in the unit in 2019? I had a little background. Yeah, I had a little bit of science background. My uh, undergraduate degrees are in um, kinesiology. So I had to take chemistry and biology and the general science courses. So I was a little familiar with DNA. Um, But you don't really need to be an expert in DNA to utilize IgG as a technique. Okay, that's fair enough.
0: All right, I'm gonna come back to you, Amy, and talk about kind of the program you guys are running, but let me go to you, Randy, and just maybe kind of tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in genetic genealogy.
4: Yeah, um, I joined the bureau in 2011. Actually, one class, academy class, I think, behind Amy. And I've basically been just following and chasing her ever since, yeah. uh, especially in this program. So keep running. yeah, so I uh, came in 2011 and I was in the Washington field office for five years and I've been in Dallas for I think seven and a half, something like that, working, um, counterintelligence, but then the last several years, since 2019 I've been working violent crime and, um, in that capacity, mostly bank robberies and Hobbs Act robberies, uh, kidnappings, things like that. And then in 2020, I think it was the first time that um, I linked up with Dallas County to work uh, an IGG case. And um, for a while I was kind of doing both, but um, a couple years ago, we transitioned, or about a year ago, we transitioned to a full-time team here in Dallas. But um, I don't have any scientific background at all. Um, I was an enlisted Marine. I did intelligence in the Marine Corps and then, um, you know, I have a I have a college degree in psychology and a master's in psychology, so not not anything scientific at all, but uh, I, it's been a learning curve, for sure, but um, learning from Amy has made this uh, a whole lot easier, for sure.
0: Oh, that's good to know. All right, I'm going to come back to you in a few minutes about your program in Dallas. How about Leighton over here? Leighton D'Antoni, welcome.
1: Thank you. Uh, My name is Leighton D'Antoni. I'm an assistant district attorney in Dallas, Texas. I have been with the office since 2012. Prior to that, I actually practiced in San Diego, California Uh, since 2000. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a a nice gig, nice place to be. In 2015, our office was awarded one of the original uh, Sexual Assault Kit Initiative grants or SACI grants and um, I was selected to Put that team together here in Dallas and have been fortunate enough to be able to run that team for the last eight years and what it really stems from it's a grant from BJA DOJ that funds not only the testing of untested sexual assault kits but also uh, the necessary investigation and follow-up prosecution um, resulting from those tests and uh, we've had quite a bit of success here in Dallas and you know are just feel uh, very fortunate to be uh, in a position to receive those federal funds to continue to do this good work.
0: How big is How big is Dallas County?
1: Uh, Dallas County, you know, it, it the county itself is fairly large, both geographically and population wise. But uh, I believe it's you know around sixth or seventh uh, largest metroplex in the United States.
0: Yeah, it's a very big community. What is um. So when you talk about the grant, I'm going to call it the SACI grant, which is the central Salt kit initiative that you mentioned. Um, how much funding was Dallas County given to be able to start looking at these kits, trying to reopen cases, that kind of stuff?
1: Well, there are different types of SACI grants that you know organizations can receive. Ours actually did not have any money for the testing of the untested kits. We had about 4,900 untested kits we inventoried in 2015. And we had to look to outside sources, mainly through uh, the state of Texas Department of Public Safety, to get money to you know have those kits tested. What our grant really focused on is what do you do once you test a kit and you identify an unknown male uh, DNA profile, or you identify a profile that matches somebody in CODIS, which is the you know the national database of convicted offenders um that takes money manpower and and a lot of time and a lot of agencies both you know at the law enforcement level and at the prosecutorial level did not have resources to really follow up properly and you know we're we're talking about a completely different way to not only investigate but prosecute sexual assault cases using you know a a survivor-centered approach Um, our team has you know two investigators two advocates two other prosecutors And and you're really, you know, there's been a lot of work done on a lot of these cases, but you're also kind of starting at the beginning. And we treat every case like it was a new case and and make sure that these cases are investigated and prosecuted correctly.
0: Sounds like an awesome model. I mean, the biggest probably area that we need help on is funding because, you know, we've got cases across the country that could benefit from these tools. How, How, when did you guys get involved, Dallas County, at doing genetic genealogy?
1: So that was a a situation, um, you know, I've been doing our cold cases for about three or four years. So, you know, I'm also a big true crime buff. So I certainly had known about the Golden State. I see you
0: on Twitter or LinkedIn with (laughs) your true crime stuff.
1: So I've known about, you know, GSK back when he was called Ear. And uh, Mm -hmm. Michelle McNamara had, had written her book and I read it in 2018. And, you know, followed it and it was shortly after I finished the book that you know the the break comes and we hear that you know suspects identified and I just I couldn't consume enough information to determine how he was identified and starting to learn that it wasn't traditional I mean ultimately it was traditional str dna right but what was this new forensic genetic genealogy and just tried to to sink my teeth into it and I remember I think it was early or first half of 2019 Um, I reached out to our local uh, FBI field office and Randy's supervisor at the time. um, We met, uh, you know, two or three times during that year, just kind of getting up to speed on it, you know, how can I help, you know, what can I do to learn about it? How can you all help with our cases? And we actually started a case, um, it was a, a cold case homicide that ultimately wasn't solved for two to three years later. Um, But that's kind of how we went off and running, and just, again, right time, right place. Very fortunate that Randy was also, I think, in the same boat as me, just extremely excited about this new technology, and, you know, it it was kind of a limitless opportunity to solve these unsolvable cases.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is, you know, um, success is often measured by passion and persistence. And I, I've noticed that about all of you guys I've, since I've gotten to know you. And and, I, and that's what I think is exciting about what the FBI is doing um, in conjunction with working with you guys. So let me go back to Amy and, and she can pop her head in here a little bit. Um, so Amy, you're, you kind of are the boss, right? You oversee the unit. Um, I'm sure Randy listens to you all the time um, and defies orders on a regular basis, but um, maybe just tell us a little bit about so you'd mentioned 2019 is when you started right after, so GSK gets solved in April of 2018. That was Steve Kramer and Steve but- Well, Steve Kramer, primarily part of the team on that, and then they created the unit in LA, right?
3: Correct. Yeah. So in 2018, right after the resolution of the Golden State Killer case, a small group in L.A. that I was not part of said, is this repeatable? Did, was this a fluke? Can we do this again? And if we can, can we put some form and function around it? And so for the next 12 months, uh, that small group of about four or five individuals did just that and solved 11 additional cases. And then in 2019, Steve Bush saw the need for this to be managed at a broader level and uh, took the technique to FBI headquarters and said, uh, you know, we need to do something with this. And the Criminal Investigative Division at FBI headquarters said, you're right, we do. Um, And it's been managed out of headquarters ever since uh, 2019. Uh, I became our first full time program manager in May of 2023, Uh, so we're going to see a lot of change in the FBI program uh, now that there is a full dedicated resource uh, to oversee the program nationally. Um, We're based regionally uh, through teams across the country, so we have the ability to assist any state and local partner anywhere in the U.S. with an unsolved homicide or sexual assault case. Um, and I think that's really unique for our program. A lot of state and local partners don't have the manpower or resources to utilize this technique, and it's it's time consuming. It takes a long time to really get familiar with the material and how it's used to identify an unknown DNA from a crime scene, and if you only have a few unsolved cases, it may not be worth trying to learn the technique for an agency. So I think we can offer agencies something that they may not be able to utilize just on their own.
0: So what, what types of cases do you guys assist the state and locals on?
3: I would say the large majority, probably 99% of our cases are homicides or sexual assaults. And those may, those may be one-off uh, homicides, those may be serial killers. Um, we've identified a number of serial killers and a number of serial rapists in the cases that we've solved. Um, To give you a few statistics, our program since 2018 has solved 134 cases, 107 of those have been suspect ID cases, the remaining being homicide victim identification and uh, the probably the most staggering number out of all of it is in those 134 cases we've brought justice to 257 victims. So that shows you that these aren't all one-off offenders. These are the worst of the worst. We are going after the most egregious offenders that are out there, victimizing communities and individuals um, and have been doing so for extended periods of time. so just
0: just for the you know kind of the process here, um, obviously, you have to have DNA on a case to be able to to do genetic genealogy. But what's like, you know what are the guidelines that you're looking at when you try to you know, when you're helping a local agency? What are you looking for? Um, you know, we all know what I think most folks know what CODIS is, but maybe kind of walk the listeners through what you're what you're looking at when you guys first get a case file and you open it up and and whether you can help or not help.
3: Yeah, it's a great question, Amory, um, and I think it it uh, there's a lot of misconception around. The fact that law enforcement is just using this technique on any case that's out there and that's not true. Um, We are using this on serious violent felony cases. Homicide and sexual assault are the two big categories that we focus on. There is, um, so we all utilize the DOJ policy, Uh, DOJ put out an interim policy on the utilization of this technique um, and they did put uh, some uh, leeway in there for ongoing threat cases to a community and that may be an ongoing threat of violence. So DOJ policy did put some leeway in for ongoing threat cases in a community and that may be an ongoing threat of a violent crime or that may be an ongoing threat to national security. Uh, Those cases do not make up a very large portion of what we're doing. They're much more nuanced and we evaluate those much more seriously. Uh, But to answer the, the rest of your question, Uh, Leighton brought this up earlier, using the traditional STR method um, is really important to a criminal case. We want to take that DNA that's found at a crime scene and make sure that that offender isn't already known to the CODIS database. And so that's a requirement that there has to have been a DNA profile searched in CODIS without a match for us to utilize IgG. We also want to make sure that it's not the first technique that law enforcement jumps to. We want to do all the other big check box, boxes like neighborhood canvases and video canvases, um, ruling out known uh, offender, either known offenders or known sexual partners with it. If it's a sexual assault victim, um, the big things that uh, we always say the the armchair. Uh, you know, detective is going to say, well, did they do A, B, and C? We are always doing those big law enforcement pieces before we utilize IGG. Um, And we always make sure that the prosecutor is on board with the case. Uh, So every local agency has a good working relationship with their local prosecuting office. And we draw a a group of individuals together to put together a team for each case uh, when we evaluate it.
0: Do you see this um, tool that you know, obviously I think is an amazing thing. Do you see it um, as the future of of crime solving in America or across the world?
3: Yeah, I think for sure it has the possibility to do that. Um, I, I don't remember who to credit this to, but someone along the line has said, this technique has the possibility to stop serial rape and serial homicide across the country it's not going to stop the one-off right we're never going to stop bad people from doing bad things but we will have the ability to stop that serial assault if we can start utilizing this on more active cases as opposed to just going back and cleaning up the cold cases. Those cases are super important to communities and to victims, and we should, and we have a responsibility to solve those as well, but we should also be utilizing this technique to solve some of the more active, ongoing crime that's happening across the country.
0: So on that tangent, um, you know, you and I have taught a bunch of classes at the same conferences and all of that, and, and you know the data out there is really quite extraordinary. That if if the public genealogy sites have a sufficient number of samples in them, law enforcement has the ability to solve ninety percent of crimes that have DNA on violent crimes. That's that's a remarkable number that we've never seen in our lifetime. I'm not sure we'll ever see anything greater than that. Fair to say?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And and that's a big key. Anne Marie is um, for. The general public to know what databases that law enforcement does have access to um, and. I think there's a misconception that law enforcement is searching every database that's out there and, and that's not the truth um, and the general public. Needs to be informed about what databases that they should be sharing their DNA with if they want to assist law enforcement. I'm going to just pause for a second. I and and maybe Layton can talk about it. Randy and I cannot talk about the databases, so that's fair. That's, um, fair. that's why I'm being. almost as- Yeah, I'll ask Layton about that. <laughs> um, Layton, why don't you just
0: maybe chime in a little bit and just mention which. What are the main, what are the databases that you're utilizing to help solve some of these, these crimes that you're working on?
1: Sure, and, and there's different levels of databases. You have your, you know, your consumer databases, some are one-off, some are more open source oriented, but you know, in a nutshell, somebody who does uh, pay the money to have a kit sent to their home, and you know, they do their own buckle swabs and their cheap sample back and they'll get their uh, analysis back. Those, you know, consumer databases are typically protected and law enforcement is not going to be able to get access to those. But once a user receives their SNP information, they are then welcome to upload it to other databases. And, and that would include GEDmatch, you know, kind is the big one that most people know about and, and is, you know, the most open source of those databases. And it's from there that you can start linking up, you know, and then really start building family trees and start associating um, blood relatives with suspects in different degrees. And, you know, I'll let my friends from the FBI get into that more because that's really their forte, Um, although I I am learning.
0: Yeah, me too. I'm not sure I would be able to build a family tree, but I do have my DNA in GEDmatch, or actually it's in family tree, but we'll go into GEDmatch.
5: Support for this podcast brought to you by the Independent Voter Project. While a lot of organizations try to fight within the two party narrative, the Independent Voter Project has taken a different route is to truly fight for nonpartisan voters. That doesn't even mean independent voters. It means independent minded voters could be Republicans, Democrats, everybody that's frustrated with the direction of our hyperpartisan politics. Um, I've been I've been representing Independent Voter Project for almost 15 years as the legal strategist. We filed lawsuits, we've written initiatives statewide in California, we've uh, joined, uh, helped found organizations on the national level that their their exclusive focus is reforming the election process so that nonpartisan voters have a more meaningful participation. That might sound esoteric or sound uh, not impactful but by definition you're always going up against the party in control or the folks that benefit from the current system. So I'm, I'm proud to be a part of successful initiatives. I'm proud of the work that IVP does. If you're following this podcast, I, I encourage you to put, to subscribe to it and um, I mean, go to independentvoterproject.org. Check it out. Look what independent voter projects doing. I know, uh, you know, you don't, you can't really miss a dinner conversation without talking about how absurd politics is. Well, you're not going to hear it from, the media that is a part of that hyperbolized conversation. You got to break out of it. Go to places like independentvoterproject.org and from there, I think you'll find that there's a growing community that are demanding changes and Independent Voter Project's leading that community. I'm Chad Peace. I'm very proud to be the legal strategist for the Independent Voter Project. For over 12 years, I've been proud that, you know, as an organization, while everyone else is focused on the two sided, hyperbolized debate, Independent Voter Projects put their head down and do things like file initiatives and lawsuits that create structural change that actually elevates the voting rights for voters who are sick and tired of the two party debate.
0: All right. thank you for that let me go back to let me go to randy now um randy maybe kind of talk about you know the fbi office in uh, dallas and you, you mentioned i think you said you started was it 2020 you started working more with genetic genealogy cases
4: yeah i was fairly new um to our violent crime task force uh, at the time I, I came over in 2019 and early in 2020 um a very rare thing in law enforcement happened to me. And that was, I ran out of things to work on briefly. So I asked everyone on the- Hey, don't I, tell
0: the public that. I know. Well,
4: <laughs> just the things that were assigned to me, I closed everything out. And I was like, hey, does anyone need any help? And someone that I worked with had said, hey, you know, we took on a case um, from the Dallas Police Department and it's a genealogy case. And I was like, oh, like, you know, Golden State Killer. And, and they were like, yeah, uh, but, you know, we just have not made a lot of ground on it yet. We're still trying to learn how to do this uh, here in Dallas. And I and um, and there were some things on that case that had we had been tasked to do that we had just not done because we were just so overwhelmed with so many other cases in the division. So, um, I picked up the phone, I took a look at the case and I picked up the phone. Edition. And um, I want to say, I think the first person I talked to was Steve Bush. and and I basically was just like, I have no idea what I'm doing on this and I need some help. And um, he walked me through a couple of steps of uh, things to do. And then ultimately uh, I was invited to go to a training that they were planning um, in LA That's to train other FBI agents in, in the, out in the field on, yeah. on the technique. And so I did attend that training. And it was amazing. It was like life changing for me. So um, after going back to Dallas, um, I'd already been in touch with Layton um, briefly, but I didn't, I didn't really know how to get my feet underneath me um, until I went to LA. So after I came back, um, we really tried to hit the uh, the ground running there. But you know, I, at that time uh, in Dallas, anyways, uh, the the technique was still, you know, I, we were still trying to. It was like a proof of concept in Dallas. Like I needed to solve a case so that my leadership here in Dallas would. Um, Feel more comfortable with me taking on more and more cases and expanding the program and and so we did do that um, after several cases uh, being successfully resolved um, the special agent in charge we had at the time brought me up into his office and said I want to know what you have going on I want to know how you're doing it and um, why we aren't doing more of it so after I explained what we had and how we were doing it he was very very impressed with uh, the entire national level program that, that was at that time more or less being managed out of LA. Um, so I uh, explained all that to him and he said, I wanna duplicate that here. And so then we significantly expanded our program um, and we brought on several more agents to work it. And I transitioned to doing it just full time in about 2022, I think it was when I officially became a full-time um, IGG investigator.
0: And let me guess, you love it. You
4: love going to work every day. I, I you know, I tell people this at work sometimes too. Like, I don't set my alarm, so I just wake <laughs> up ready to go. And sometimes I actually wake up like in a panic because I'm like, I've got so much to do today to to resolve these cases, you know. And and uh, and the relationships that you build with these police departments and other agencies, including like Dallas County District Attorney's Office, um, you know, I'm making. A lot of promises to them about uh, the amount of effort we're going to put into an investigation for them to uh, work those cases with us. Because you know, at the end of the day, this is these are their cases; these are not our cases. Um, and so, I, I'm in a unique position in the bureau where I'm working on an investigation that really belongs to another agency. And so, I work them uh, and try to maintain those promises I've made about the amount of effort we put in. And and luckily uh that has paid off because we have you know had some success here
0: yeah it's been amazing it's definitely a very good model i mean the the key to all of it to me is the dedication of the resources because the passion comes with the cases but it's also the funding that is really critical um so i want to talk to you and layton really about a specific case that is resolved that um i think it's kind of showcases the the great work the fbi is doing with local prosecutors and local law enforcement and that's the David Hawkins case Is that you guys okay all right um so um either one of you Randy or Layton if you want to just kind of give the listeners a sense of, of what was the the David Hawkins case about and how did you guys get to the point of resolution
1: sure so in March of 2020, uh, the COVID pandemic just, you know, hits and shuts down America and the world, frankly. And, and Marie, as you know, as a prosecutor, I love working on cases. I love investigating. You know, we're always being told you're a prosecutor, not an investigator. wish I had time to do all this investigation work, but my entire career is spent preparing for trial or being in trial and that's really the gist of my day to day. Sure, if I have some time on a weekend, I can maybe dig into some of this other interesting stuff, but frankly, I just didn't have the time. But then all of a sudden, March 2020 hits and the courthouse shuts down, our office shuts down, everyone sends us home, I can't be in court, I can't be out interviewing, preparing for trials. Every trial I had was canceled. But, you know, I still had a job and still had something new, and this was, again, it was just a perfect moment in time where I could really then sink my teeth into this new technology and, you know, work with our our local partners in the FBI trying to learn more about it. And I think it was about two or three weeks into the shutdown, I get an email, uh, which was, was an attachment from a woman who lived here in the area um about her case and, and it was a, a prolific she was one of many victims of a prolific serial rapist in Dallas in the early and mid 1980s and she was explaining it, all these things and, you know we we have his DNA profile it didn't hit anybody in CODIS it matches cases out in Shreveport Louisiana um and then did she did. have
0: an acronym did they have an acronym for the rapist what they called him
1: He's had several and I think it's one of those situations was, and as we came to find, you know, he was a, he traveled for work primarily in in Louisiana, all throughout Texas, all out to West Texas. And there were, I think Randy can probably speak to this a little bit more. There were some names and traveling Texas rapist and some other groups got together and realized he was probably the same person even before there were the DNA case to case matches. But again, and you know, this was a, another perfect example of why VICAP was so important because, you know, these cases weren't really connected with each other, um, they are now, but...
0: What's VICAP, know, just so the listeners understand, Dayton? Uh, well, I'm going to let
1: the experts on VICAP, <laughs> that one, since it's, it's their baby. <laughs>
3: VICAP yeah. is the uh, FBI's violent criminal apprehension program and it's a database that uh any law enforcement agency can upload case details on and it will link cases together based on victimology and mo uh which is great for cases that don't as Leighton said don't have any DNA case-to-case matches so you may have a very similar victim profile or an identical mo in jurisdictions in separate states and they're never going to link together because those law enforcement agencies don't know each other they don't know about each other's crimes and so vicap has the ability to link cases that are similar across multiple states um across the country what have you okay all right fair enough
1: and, and as I said, so Hawkins was kind of a perfect case of why ViCAP is so important because it really was trying to target offenders, serial offenders, who were you know doing this on the move, different states, different jurisdictions, truck drivers, uh, people who traveled. Um, but you know we did know about these four cases ultimately in Dallas that were case-to-case matches uh, that also matched the cases out in Shreveport. She sends me this letter, and at the bottom of the letter she asked me if I had heard about genetic genealogy and that, you know, this was a new technique and would this be something that, you know, I could help her look into uh, to help potentially solve her case and it, you know, just, you know, bells started going off in my head and I think first thing I did was, you know, go through that checklist, okay, we have a, a male unknown DNA profile, um, you know, is it in CODIS? and sometimes it might say it's in CODIS, but you got to actually go check, and there's different levels of CODIS, you need to make sure uh, where in CODIS it is, and um, it kind of checked all those things, Then you have to go to the agency, and in this case it was the Dallas Police Department, uh, request all their archive files, go to the crime lab, request any of the testing that they've done, and during COVID, unfortunately, that, that took a little bit longer than usual. But I think after about a week or so, we had all of that stuff, and um, I went right to Randy and said, "I think we have a uh, the perfect, you know, investigative genetic genealogy case."
0: How many um, how many cases were linked by DNA? You said you mentioned Louisiana, obviously in Dallas. How many total cases would you say by DNA were linked to this one person?
1: So in Dallas, we had four cases that were case-to-case matches between 1982 and 1985. And then there were two other cases that also matched from Shreveport, Louisiana.
0: Okay. So one of the things that, um, when I was doing some research on this, actually one of your task force members told me about this, Randy, was that in the early days on these Shreveport cases, somebody was actually charged with those crimes and ultimately it was not ultimately pursued, but maybe you can kind of tell us a little bit about that because I always want to highlight, not just the power of DNA, but the power of genetic genealogy to kind of lift those clouds of suspicion off people that are actually innocent.
4: Yeah, you know, when when Layton first brought me the case, he he told me, "Here are the four specific cases we have in Dallas," and I think at that time we only knew that there were hits in Shreveport, but we didn't know anything about those cases specifically. Um, And so I reached out to our, we have an office in Shreveport, and we have a detective who is assigned to that office who is a Shreveport um, detective, who she was working as a task force officer. So I just called her and said, hey, I have this case. Um, It matches these two uh, assaults you have in uh, Shreveport. Do you mind taking a look at it and just telling me what you got over there? And so she comes back to me um, the next day and says, you're not going to believe this, but this case is very famous in uh, our area. And this guy was known as the Shreve City Rapist, and he's responsible for a number of uh, sex assaults. And, and honestly, I can't remember how many it was, but it, she sent me a list and it was, it was large. It was like between 12 and 15 um, sex assaults that they attributed wow. to this one person. Um, now, they only had two of them tied together in CODIS. All the rest were BICAP cases that they had tied together through MO. But, um, you know, she was very interested in, in participating and in helping us get that case resolved. And she told me some information about that case that, you know, later came to light uh, as we further developed into our investigation. But early on, you know, she told me, you know, someone was arrested for these assaults and, um, and that that person was a police officer in Shreveport. And, and the way I think it happened was that our subject in this case was uh, going around apartment complexes and he's looking in windows and and things like that, looking for targets. And um, um, an apartment manager had seen him do this or seen someone who looked suspicious in the apartment complex. Well, then the next day she realizes that a sex assault had occurred there, that the police department was investigating that. And she said, hey, I saw this person looking in windows and he looked just like this officer that I'm familiar with. And so um, I don't know the details of why they eventually arrested that officer, but that officer was arrested. And um, 12 hours after he was arrested, another sex assault occurred. And at that time, the police department um, said that they believed that that was gonna be a copycat rapist. And so I I think it went all the way to trial in that investigation. Um, He was ultimately uh, vindicated in the end. I mean, he, he he was found not guilty But I think because there was not any DNA at the time um, in the 80s to truly completely vindicate him, uh, I think it did cause a lot of damage to his life, even though he was ultimately found not guilty for any of those offenses.
0: And I assume, obviously, later on he was vindicated through DNA as well.
4: Yeah, so ultimately when we did make an arrest in this case, um, I located him and contacted him. And he would prefer to stay anonymous, but he is, um, you know, had a successful career outside of law enforcement after that, and um, was very grateful that you know we had continued to pursue those, uh, to to work that investigation and identify a subject, and he he was very happy to hear from us.
0: Yeah, well, it's an amazing story of exoneration, really. So maybe Randy and Leighton, just. Maybe walk us through how you you know you find this case. It's actually I find it interesting that it was kind of driven initially by a victim, um, at least reaching out. And then how did you guys? How did you solve it?
4: Well, I got a call from Layton, um, and this is early on. Layton and I know each other very well now, but at the time I was just I wanted cases. So I was like, "Hey," he calls me and says, "I I, uh, heard you're an expert." and I was far from an expert at that time, and I said, yes, I am an expert. <laughs> what can I do for you? So we, um, I got the case opened, and then, um, you know, we had an STR profile on that case, and we ultimately, you know, realized we needed to do some additional lab work. So um, I worked with the Dallas County lab here, which is called Swifts, and uh, with Leighton facilitating it, we were able to get that DNA sample sent to a private lab where we produced a SNP profile and then um, maybe
0: explain the snip SNP profile i know what that is but that's a yeah that's an acronym that not better
4: to describe it but um it's essentially a a different kind of measurement of your dna that uh, looks at different portions of the dna than we do in law enforcement and those portions of the dna um, when put into a database that database uses algorithms to help us to determine familial relationships to other people. So they produced a different kind of measurement for us. And then we put that uh, DNA into a database that cooperates with law enforcement where the other people in that database um, have agreed to um, have their uh, DNA be or participate in these kinds of searches. Um, and we identified family members, uh, distant family members, and then we started doing a genealogy process where we developed a tree. Uh, In this case specifically, we were very fortunate, a lot like you guys were in the Golden State Killer case because we had good matches. And um, I think from the moment I was notified that the DNA was uploaded into the database before we identified Hawkins as a suspect was approximately like 15 hours. Um,
0: That's incredible. 15 hours after 40 years of investigation essentially, right?
4: Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I would, I know that uh, you know there's going to be the public listening to this, and and surely, surely a lot of other prosecutors and investigators who are like, oh my gosh, that's amazing! Like we want in on that. But I will tell you, uh, results may vary. <laughs> so we've had we,
0: cases in Sacramento that it took them three years in genealogy. It just depends on how good the matches are and how far those relationships go out, right?
4: Yeah, and and just really the the quality of the records um, that we're looking at as well, public records. So we were able to identify him fairly quickly. We got the results in the database on a Friday evening. And I I think I got the call at like 4 p.m. on a Friday, which is normally when we experience bank robberies here in Dallas. So um, I was like, hey, I'm gonna start working on this right away. So I actually went home and worked on it uh, pretty deep into the evening and I I didn't do it alone. There were other people helping me. We all worked on that tree, um, on some trees. And then the next morning, Uh, At a certain point in the night, we called it uh, as like, hey, let's just take a break. And I think I pretended to sleep for about two hours. And I was like, impossible. Like, I have to keep working on this. So I got up and kept working on it. And um, later that morning, we had identified Hawkins as very likely to be our suspect. Um, And then I called, I think I called late that morning.
1: Yeah, no, I'll never forget that day, you know, it was a very seminal moment for me uh, as a prosecutor and certainly on this journey of investigative genetic genealogy, but I was at my son's baseball game. It was a Saturday morning, afternoon, and I knew that the day before we had gotten the SNP results back, um, but hadn't, you know, we had had some other cases we had been doing genealogy on and, and hadn't solved. and so. I just assumed that this was gonna be one of those things that might take, you know, months, years, you know, but at least we were on our way. And when I got that call, I was floored. I mean, and it wasn't like, you know, we got some good matches, we're close. It's, this is his name, this is where he lives. And then Randy texted me a photograph of him. And now he's like, like you had said earlier, 40 years of investigative work, thousands and thousands of hours from countless people and this thing gets solved in less than 24 hours.
0: It's kind of remarkable. I mean, I, you know, there's, it's almost like you know where you were when Elvis died and, and John F. Kennedy was shot. And, you know, for me in the GSK, you know, I, I have exactly the same feeling that you have, Leighton. And it's those are the moments we won't forget in our career because so much work was put into it. Um, so, OK, so walk us through. You guys have him as the suspect. I'm assuming you have to go get another sample from him to try to confirm that. The traditional type of DNA testing that had been done?
4: Yeah, after we identified him, um, so now the IGG portion of the investigation is over. So total time, IGG, 15 hours. Now we're back to traditional law enforcement work. And um, at that time, just because of the way the case had come from the Dallas County District Attorney's Office directly, we weren't working with the police department yet. Um, So and and they didn't have any detectives assigned to a case from, you know, cases from the 1980s. So we decided that we would um, start doing surveillance on this person right away. He lived about an hour to an hour and a half southwest of Dallas in a small town. Um, we immediately conducted surveillance on him, identified him, saw him in person, and then spent the next several days uh, keeping track of where he was and what he was doing and, and who all was in his residence. Um, and then, eventually, we saw him drag a bin of trash out to the curb to be picked up, and, um, and then we decided to collect that trash. So, we collected it, brought it back to the police department. And in those interim days, we had reached out to the Dallas Police Department and said, hey, we have cases that belong to you guys that we've been looking at, and we, we have identified a suspect. And so, now, at that point, two detectives had been assigned to the case, and they met us at our FBI field office and we conducted a trash trash search where we pulled several items that uh, we believed had DNA, potentially had DNA on them. And then we very happily drove them over to the Dallas County lab where we were high-fiving each other and, and checking it in. Um, and then a few days later, um, I got a call from Layton telling me, you know, that that, that DNA had um, hit to our case uh that all four of those cases
1: and, and what was real important with you know the trash pull and why the surveillance needs to take place before the poll is you need to establish a pattern of life and pattern of who is going into that residence who's coming out um, you know because typically you'll have uh, fathers and sons Uh, Maybe a son lives there, maybe a son visits frequently. We've certainly had that scenario. But we can eliminate that son because that son was either not born or, you know, five years old when when our crime occurred. And in this case, you know, it was a remote area. He lived by himself. He did have a, you know, quasi-living girlfriend who would spend the night, uh, a few nights a week, but there were no other males going in and out of that house. So we knew any male DNA identified from that trash was going to be his and ultimately we were able to identify that dna and it was a a perfect match to our suspect
0: so at what point then once you send it to the lab you confirm it's it hawkins is the serial rapist you know tell us maybe a little bit about the arrest and then prosecution commences i assume from that point
4: yeah and, and obviously you're familiar with how these types of investigations normally work you know a lot about your uh suspect long before you take them into custody Um, that is very typical in law enforcement so we had a situation here where we know very little about hawkins but we do know that he is a one-to-one match for these multiple sex assaults and so um we weren't in a position at that time to really drag this out and and thoroughly dig into him so a decision was made at um, the dallas police department that he needed to be, be taken into custody right away so I believe the day after we received the results, maybe two days later, we went and arrested him. Um, It was very far from the Dallas uh, Police Department. It was far from Dallas. And so the Dallas Police Department and us were working it together and we decided, hey, we're willing to help you with this arrest so you don't have to send too many officers down uh, to this faraway town. So the FBI conducted the arrest um, with the Dallas Police Department present. And then he was taken into custody and brought back um, to the Dallas Police Department. We interviewed him. He uh, was cooperative. He he wanted to talk to us and he did talk for several hours, but he was just very clear that he was not going to discuss any of those allegations against him at that time. And he, he actually made the comment to me, you're not gonna believe me right now, but I'm very pro law enforcement. I, I love what you guys do. I support everything you guys do. I just, I'm not gonna talk about these things until I've talked to an attorney. And so, i took that opportunity to just talk to him about anything he was wanting to talk about then so I, we talked for several hours um and the detective and i talked with him and then we had invited our counterparts from shreveport to participate in that so they had come to dallas and they um, interviewed him for quite some time as well so all said and done I, I couldn't tell you how many hours it was it was three hours something like that that we spent talking with him. and i'll tell you um i was just trying to get to know him a little better so that if in the future he would talk to me again that maybe um, i would gain some ground so i spent that time building rapport and i think we mostly talked about his family where he was from growing up Uh, he had a motorcycle we talked a lot about that and then ultimately at the end you know we we sent him over to dallas county jail um and then i think well i'll let you talk about that
1: so and you know, and you know, Anne Marie, on a case like this where it, it's a serial offender, and you have case to case matches, and, and I know we haven't talked a lot about the MOs, but it, it's actually very similar to GSK. You know, he would go into these young women's apartments, ski mask, gloves, gun. Um, he was binding, very violent, aggravated rapes, and so, you know, I, I felt very confident, you know, as confident as a prosecutor can feel about a case, regardless of whether we got a confession or anything from right, the interview. Right. But you know what was so important about that interview that Randy conducted, and he did it with uh, Todd Hager, who was the detective from the Dallas Police Department. I would worked with Todd for years. He's as good as a detective as I've ever worked with in my career. Um, and, and what Randy and Todd are so great at are getting suspects comfortable with them. So I didn't need a confession and I, I really didn't need anything, but what I needed was for him to trust not only this case we had against him, and he was done for, Right. But we always knew at, at a certain point, and I always kind of thought down the road, and I think Randy and I probably talked about it, is maybe one day we would be able to sit down with him and kind of debrief everything. Right. Um, it doesn't happen a lot, but I thought this might be one of those opportunities where that could happen. So that initial uh, day of arrest interview that Todd and Randy did was extremely important and, and accomplished all those goals. Um, but again, he, you know, he didn't confess. He, he gets a... As lawyer, and it became evident to me pretty early on, um, being able to, um, you know, listen to communications he had with his family and his family members, he he was very protective of his family. You know, he had a daughter in college, he had adult children living in the Dallas area, and these were all upstanding, great citizens. You know, and it's always terrible what these cases do. To these family members um but hawkins really wanted to spare as much media attention and shame on his family now certainly when the arrest happened there there was you know it's on the news it's in the newspaper uh the media coverage had started but once i realized that was so important to him it allowed uh, you know our office to kind of put ourselves in a kind of power position of a plea bargain negotiation which right there wasn't going to be one. I told his lawyer there's not going to be a plea offer. Uh, he would have to plead." He
0: just needs to stay in prison for the rest of his
1: life, right? And, right. And I said he needed to plead to each and every case, accept a life sentence, waive right of appeal in every case, as slam dunk and as airtight as we could possibly do it. And, and if we did that, you know, I made the commitment that it, I would not um, do any interviews, do any press, do anything until the conclusion of the case and uh, he went and talked to you know his client about it and it was about a day or two later that I get the call back and you know there was a little counter offer he said Well, how have about 60 years on and, and we dismissed two of the cases or whatever and I said no and I'd already spoken with our victims they were pretty adamant they were all willing to come you know back to Dallas testify uh, the only resolution this case was going to be uh, a life sentence and him waiving appeal and uh, he ultimately agreed to it and then we threw on the the kicker that he needed to sit down with us and and tell us everything because again as you know uh, these serial offenders it's not a one-time deal and if you know about four right. you can probably multiply it by 10 or 20. Um, we knew that the compulsion in, in somebody like this it, it had been happening before we knew about it, it probably happened after cases we knew about and happened in other locations um, so we spent probably a, you know, a good amount of my time on this case post arrest was really getting prepared for that debrief so that we could set up a, a situation because it was going to be before the, the plea or Randy and his team could come in and spend a whole day with them, um, which they did. And I'll, I'll let Randy get into that a little bit more in specifics, but um, you know that, again, you know that doesn't happen very often. So we,
4: we were very right. fortunate. So Sorry. Randy,
0: how many, I mean, yeah, why don't you just tell us about that and how it went.
4: Yeah, I'll tell you, in the interim from the time <clears throat> of his arrest until um, the follow-up interview we conducted with him, um, we kicked into overdrive uh, at the FBI trying to determine, has this guy raped anyone else? Are there any other victims out there that need to be notified uh, that are not CODIS hits? So, we started um, digging into him a little bit more and we realized that he worked for a food, food distribution company. He's the director of their safety division and that allowed him to travel all across the state of Texas and into Louisiana um, with a company vehicle. He didn't report to anyone. He could make a decision that he needed to travel to another city in Texas without, with, with almost no oversight. And so we started to be concerned that he may have uh, conducted assaults in other cities. So we started doing our own investigation and through reviewing old newspapers, we actually identified um, a whole lot of different assaults that had occurred in other cities. And that's when we finally realized that he had a moniker. Uh, he had, we knew about the Shreve City Rapist moniker, but at that time we learned that there was a rapist called the Texas Traveling or he was called the Traveling Rapist. Um, and so we started digging into that more and the more we looked into the Traveling Rapist, uh, we realized that he was responsible for rapes all across North Texas and that these different uh, PDs had all met in Lubbock um, and had wow. a an conference specifically to discuss these assaults because they were unique enough in their MO that they believed that it would, they were dealing with the same suspect. So they would get together, discuss these cases, and they invited Shreveport to attend that meeting and, and the Shreveport Police Department did a- attend um, and every PD spoke to the press afterwards and Shreveport had already arrested an officer and they said, hey, we just don't think our guy is the same guy. We now know that he was based off the DNA we have, but um, we knew these other cities needed to be contacted. So I started contacting each one of these cities, asking for them to review their records. of, And I, I could give them specific dates based off of things I was reading in newspapers about assaults that had occurred in their cities. And unfortunately, not any of those police departments were able to produce any records for those assaults. I would get calls back from detectives saying, you know, I believe this assault occurred. I, I, we're looking at the same newspaper article you are. However, we just don't have that documentation anymore uh, because it was paper, there was fire, there was a flood. Um, right. At certain points, uh, they had different practices and policies on how long they maintained things. So we didn't have any of that. But going into my interview with Hawkins, now I know he is responsible for far more than we have um, in front of us on CODIS. And so one of my goals was to get him to identify further victims, not so that we could charge him with additional cases. Uh, We really just felt like the victims deserve to know that the person who did this to them is in in custody so that they can sleep peacefully tonight and not be worrying about it, Uh, someone coming into their house again. So um, we met with Hawkins at the Dallas County jail and interviewed him. That interview was over four hours long. And during that time, um, Hawkins made what, what, we, what we will call a confession. So he admitted that he was responsible for the cases that we had brought against him. He, however, was very careful the information that would allow us to charge him with any additional cases. But in a very vague way, he, he told us And I think specifically even that he had committed over 30 home invasion sex assaults. I asked him about specific cities and he named those cities. It was, you know, Texas Panhandle cities like Lubbock and Amarillo. He had been to Abilene, Wichita Falls.
1: Yeah, it it was
4: tremendous. I mean,
1: and we knew his route from when he worked at the company that went literally from Shreveport, you know, a thousand miles across the state of Texas and, and all the cities that he would stay at. and you know Randy could speak to more about the specifics of his MO. Um, but you know when again, he says it was at least 30, I have to think it during all those years, we're probably talking you know close to 100.
0: What is yeah. uh, I mean, what's the timeline? So we know you know the ones in Dallas are, are the 80s, but I mean, do you think he was committing crimes into the 90s and 2000s?
1: So we know that that he committed his his first sexual assault that we knew about was I believe in 1971 in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And we knew there were multiple cases in Arkansas. And then there was a period of time where he was actually in prison in Arkansas. This is after, by the way, he had graduated from med school and was a doctor, um, which is always an interesting fact to me. But then, you know, I believe he said late 70s is when he had relocated to uh, Tarrant County Fort Worth area of Texas and I believe that's when it started back up again I don't know that we can prove there's no case that I could take into court past 1986 Um, you know and again I let Randy talk about his reasoning for why he stopped or how he
4: stopped uh. he gave us a drop dead date of 1989 (laughs) he said anything after 1989 is not me and um, we were not able to identify any late 80s cases that we could uh, really attribute to him. He gave me information occasionally that, you know, we could potentially try to identify some victims. And we did do that. Um, he gave me an example of a time he broke into someone's home and a lot of times there were males present. And I would ask him, what well, what, you know, what was your plan when you show up to this house? And there's a male there too. And he said he would have the female tie the male up and then he would commit that assault in their presence um and so sounds he, a told lot him, like the GSK. he like, sounds I'm familiar sure.
1: yeah yes it was, it, very much
0: so it, a
4: matter of fact the the comparisons between him and gsk are enormous matter of fact we arrested him the same week that the golden state killer was um sentenced and so there was a lot of news parallels made here about this case being tied to that one um, but he admitted to me that he had done this for you know extended period of time and he told me that it was always a target of opportunity now I'll tell you while he was making a confession to me and I believe that he was responsible he wasn't lying about that I think the details and the seriousness of what he did he minimized it as much as he could so he never told me that he targeted anyone on purpose, but based off of our investigation, we don't believe that's true. We think that his, his victims, for example, in Shreveport um, had been in, one of them was in the newspaper and the other had um, written that newspaper article and, and he assaulted both of those women. And I don't think that that happens um, on accident. So he, he told us that he would break into these homes and, and commit these assaults. Um, and then he told us that he had actually assaulted a few of these women on multiple occasions. So he had he had assaulted them and then a year later assaulted them again and um, but he would not claim he could not provide us with details to help us identify who those victims were. So we still unfortunately don't know who those victims are.
0: Wow so we're almost out of time here but I just want to I mean let me just ask both of you is this in terms of the volume of crimes he committed I mean Leighton you said you wouldn't be surprised if it's 100. I mean, have you ever seen a case of this magnitude um, in, in your professional career of, that you guys have worked on?
1: For me, it's certainly up at the top. I think I had one case uh, in 2016 or 17 where we actually had 18 victims who testified uh, on, a, on a pretty prolific serial case here in South Dallas. But no, I, I think he's probably is responsible for as many victims as I've ever encountered in my career
0: so um you know it seems like the case all originated by an email Layton. I mean did you maybe if you're okay with it what was it like to tell that victim that you'd identified this person
1: I will and I will tell you um we certainly are never going to name a sexual assault victim um right. it, it's not something we do it, it's standard practice but uh Carrie who this woman is, would be very upset with me if I did not name her. Uh, She has repeatedly told me anytime I talk to anybody about this case, she wants anyone to know she's done a multitude of interviews and documentaries about this case. But at the end of the day, this case doesn't happen if Carrie doesn't reach out to me. Um, She, in all intents and purposes, solved her own case. You know, we were the tools and we were, you know, had access to the tools that were able to solve this case. But uh, without Carrie reaching out to me and, and, you know, from that day on, she gets all the credit for solving this case.
0: That's amazing. I mean, it's why we all get into the business, right, is to help these folks. So, you know, as we wrap up, let me let me go back to Amy. You know, I always try to end my podcast, these podcasts with. You know, what do you want the listeners to to walk away with, you know, what little nugget? Um, Amy, how about you?
3: Uh, I think for me, it's the public understanding of what law enforcement is utilizing IgG for, um, and that's for very, very serious violent felony cases. Um, And that when we are utilizing these publicly available genealogy databases, we don't have any special access. We view these databases just like any public consumer was, would. We get the same exact information that they would see out of the databases, and we don't have access to any DNA profiles. So the profile that the consumer uploads to the database. Yeah, exactly the bad guys. Uh, who has abandoned theirs at a crime scene. Um, but yeah, the DNA that the public uploads to the database, we don't see that DNA. We only see the relationship to the unknown crime scene DNA. Okay, fair enough. And then how about you, Randy? What do you think is the most important lesson here that you've learned?
4: Yeah, you know, I can only speak for us here in Dallas, uh, but I'll just, I would, you know, want everyone to know that in Dallas here at the FBI, we are committed to solving these cases. Um, There is no shortage of cases that we can work with this technique right now, Um, and, you know, we work diligently to identify and prosecute these cases, and so um, we look forward to growing our program and continuing to just bring some success to these police departments and and making arrests.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Randy. How about you, Leighton?
4: You know, to piggyback on something
1: Amy said earlier, what this case really showed me was that this is a model for repeatable success and and I can't stress it and you know, you know, sometimes we have great relationships with law enforcement as prosecutors. Sometimes we don't. Uh, Unfortunately, things get in the way. Sometimes there's lack of trust. And this showed me that not only can we repeat this, but we, we can have trust with the Dallas FBI office. And now anytime, you know, Rainey and I are opening up a case or going out and again, it started with Dallas Police Department. Now we've expanded it to multiple other police departments in Dallas County uh, because people hear about this. People hear about, you know, all the success that we've had in these cases and how we're solving them and how serious they are. I mean, we're solving, you know, cold case homicides from the eighties and, and beyond. It, it's remarkable. So people want to get in on that. And so this case was really the model to show first ourselves but now everybody else that this is just such an incredibly powerful tool and and it is the future you know and and it's here
0: yeah well i i like your phrase model for repeatable success so i just you know as i end this i just want to thank you guys i mean listen um, it's remarkable what the fbi is doing um it's remarkable what people like leighton are doing and I just know that in this world that this is the future and it's the future is now so thank you all of you for sharing your insight uh, and experiences and to the listeners thank you for joining in and you can find more podcasts on insidecrimefiles.com and you can also join our mailing list so thank you all for joining me today thanks Anne-Marie happy to be here Um, for the listeners out there um, i hope you keep listening to these podcasts you can find us on insidecrimefiles.com and listen to more about the true consequences of crime and the innovation and inspiration that comes out of these cases. So I just thank you all.
1: Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olaz Media in San Diego, California. To listen to more episodes, visit InsideTheCrimeFiles.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Inside the Crime Files. Be sure to follow and subscribe whenever you listen to your podcasts. To read the blog associated with this episode, visit olasmedia.com. This episode was produced in studios located in San Diego, California. Lena Alvarez is co-producer. Serving as executive producer and co-founder is JC Polk, and Chad Peace is president and co-founder. Olas Media is an IVC media company.
5: Olas Media.